going to turn there. Let's open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the, the assurance you've given us that you are at work, that you're reaching out in the world, and that the comfort that you offer it isn't a hollow comfort. It's a, a real solid presence in our lives that, that you are the source of all things and that you're the one that protects us and you're the one that endures throughout the ages and that nothing is too small for your notice and nothing's too big for you to handle. As we're studying your word this morning, we'd ask that we'd be able to latch on to the assurance that you offered it, offered us through your word and that you'd touch each heart, give us a reason to step up to the plate and swing, to, to step into the service that you've asked us to serve in, to take your yoke upon you and uh, on, upon us and learn from you. We, we want to be your disciples, not just pew warmers, not just people that claim to be believers, but actually people that are walking with you and following you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> John chapter 6. <coughs> uh, <coughs> We so clear last June. We talked. We went, we jumped way ahead, and we talked about the bread of life. <clears throat> and uh, in that context, of course, you probably remember that when Jesus had fed the five thousand men and their wives and kids on five loaves and two fishes, uh, then he took off, and those people followed him to the next place he went, which is someplace close to Capernaum, on the other side of the Lake of Gal Sea of Galilee. Uh, and they wanted more food. He knew that's what they wanted. And he confronted them, and he said, you just came because you wanted more food. <clears throat> uh, you're hoping to see more miracles and so forth. That was in John 6, 26. And we talked about that. We talked about Jesus being the bread of life, and they didn't like hearing that. They immediately started to argue with him and, and asked for more miracles. Well, what sign do you show us that we should, you know, Come on, guys. You're the ones that yesterday ate, everybody got full from five little loaves and two little bitty fishes that that boy had in his lunch. And you recognized that as a miracle, and you were so overwhelmed by that that you wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. And today, you're saying, well, what sign do you show that we should listen to you? Am I talking to the same group of people here? What happened? Well, Jesus didn't get too much into that. He went and taught him on him being the bread of life, didn't point out, guys, it was just yesterday you were trying to take me, kidnap me, and make me king, which I refused to do on your terms. So we saw all that. Let's read what the next 11 verses say, starting in verse 37. I'm reading from the King James well, I'll start in verse 36. He says, I said unto you that you also have seen me and believed not. Verse 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. <clears throat> For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will who has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one who sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. That's what he said back in uh, 
verse 35 and 32, 33, and so forth. <clears throat> Jesus answered, uh, excuse me, and they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said, Murmur not amongst yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's three times he's promised to raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be, uh, they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God. He has seen the Father, speaking of himself. Verse 47, we'll close with that. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me has everlasting life. <clears throat> Let's back up and take a look at that. <clears throat> Verse 37, there's a real key here. He says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. And there's a period there, in case you hadn't noticed. Jesus added no qualifiers to that promise. In fact, the way he worded it, it eliminated the possibility of adding qualifiers. You can't say, well, he means accept, or unless, or provided that. No, there's none of that. And, and we do add those in. I've had people say, well, that means as long as you keep doing. No, it doesn't mean that. He says, I will in no wise cast out. That means under no circumstances will he cast out one who comes to him in faith. Now, I've had people argue, well, you can't know if you're one of the ones the Father's given unto him. All right, well, then maybe that's where we need to start. <clears throat> it is true that Jesus said many are called, but few are chosen. He said it in two different places, Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, and Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. In both cases, he was speaking to the unbelieving Jews and warning them that the call has gone out to the whole world, Gentiles and Jews alike. Everyone has received some, some sort of call that includes the Jews and the Gentiles. And the fact that the Jews were the chosen people of God, and that's true, they are, were and are, did not mean that each of them was guaranteed a place in eternity with God. Nor did it even mean that they were guaranteed a place of service with God. Because the one in Matthew chapter 20 was only talking about service. If you look at that one, I'm not going to turn there right now, but in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, he's, he's finishing up a thing about service. There's these people that all served. Some of them served all day. Some of them served half a day. Some of them only served the last couple of hours. And the, the landowner, the vineyard owner, chose to pay them all the same. He paid, them, he paid the first ones exactly what he had promised them and paid the rest according to his will, and he gave them all the same. And the ones from the first who had worked all day felt like they'd been cheated. No, you weren't. You made an agreement with me to work for this amount of money, and I'm giving you that. Now, it's, it's my money, it's my land, it's my choice, and I wanted them to have a day's wages. It wasn't their fault that they weren't there the first time I can't called. See, all of them served, but some of them were chosen for special treatment at his will. All right, but the other one in Matthew chapter 22 definitely is talking about salvation. Because the person who was not chosen, the person who was cast out, says was cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That one's talking about salvation. But he's still talking to unbelieving Jews, saying that the fact that you're the chosen people of God does not guarantee that you personally are headed for heaven. I, I remember when I was in Bible school going out 
trying to share the gospel on the street, and then I talked to an older Jewish man. I didn't know he was Jewish. He was just a guy. I was trying to share Jesus with him. He said, already saved. And I said, how are you saved? He said, I'm saved because I'm part of the great congregation. So what congregation is that? <laughs> just an ignorant savage from Oregon. I didn't know. And uh, I said, I'm a Jew, man. I'm saved because I'm a Jew. And that's what he actually believed, that because he was born as a physical offspring of Abraham, that he was automatically saved. Huh. That's interesting, because that's exactly what Jesus was addressing and saying, it ain't so. John chapter 8, he told the Jews there who were arguing with him, he says, you're not the child of God. You're not even a child of Abraham spiritually. He says, you're of your father, the devil, and his work will you do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and when he speaks a lie, he's speaking his own language, because he's a liar and the father of lies. John chapter 8, verse 44, read it. I bet they weren't happy about that. That's not, that's not a nice way to tell people that they got a problem. <clears throat> but he's ruled out the possibility of the chosen people thinking that they're just guaranteed to get to heaven. He's pointing out the probability that unless they know him personally, no, they're not. <clears throat> they saw themselves as being privileged. They saw themselves as already being accepted with God because of their birth of their heritage and when jesus made an unqualified unconditional promise that he that cometh unto me i will in no wise cast out that redefined what chosen means you see god says he chose us before the foundation of the world <clears throat> so we need to see who are the chosen in terms of salvation i had a young man at work he was a uh, he'd come from a Russian believer background. I don't know uh, what he would call himself today, but he told me in all seriousness and very somber terms that, look, you can, you can receive Jesus by faith, but you can't know if you're one of the chosen until you die. What a sad falsehood to teach in a church. We're going to examine what that does to people today. I tried to allay his fears by showing him from Scripture how he could know today that he was one of the chosen. I'm not at all sure he bought it. He listened. He just kind of looked at me. I'm not sure he bought it at all. But what we're going to do is go through the Scripture this morning and see how I can know today that I have eternal life. And I can know today that I'm never, ever going to be condemned by God because God says so. <clears throat> In Matthew 22, we did see that the chosen there had to do with salvation. But <clears throat> if that person, that the, this uh the owner of the feast, the wedding feast, that said to this guy, how'd you get in here with no, no wedding garment? And had him bound hand and foot and cast out into outer darkness. See, if that guy had been a believer, then that would have negated what Jesus promised because he said, he that cometh unto me, I will under no circumstances in no wise cast out. So that guy apparently had not approached him by faith. And we're going to need to see some examples from the Old Testaments how we know that's so. Abraham's the prime example. He's from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Jesus, God made him a promise, and it says Abraham believed God, and God reckoned it to him or credited it to him, imputed it to him as righteousness. Imputation is a nice theological term. that means it was added to his account. It was credited to his account. <clears throat> Some of you are old enough to remember when they didn't have computers, and 
we'd go to the bank, and if you deposited a, ca uh, a check or cash or anything, um, usually they wouldn't go through and do their book work till the end of the day, which meant if you wrote a check on that money that you just deposited, it's not there yet. And if you needed to write a check, you'd tell them ahead of time, I need that posted to my account right now. And they'd say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And they'd, now it's there. And if you go out and write a check on it, the money's there. If you didn't tell them that, then it'd be there tomorrow. Okay, That's somewhat changed because of the computer systems. <clears throat> but Abraham's a prime example, and he's the one that the New Testament leans on when they go back to, to prove this point, to teach this idea. There's another example right next to him, though, his nephew, Lot. <clears throat> now, we think of Lot as, eh, I don't know, man, is he really a believer? You look at his history in Genesis chapter 19, and there's only one little wavering, feeble, faulty show of maybe some faith where he's trying to stand for righteousness in, in Genesis chapter 19 there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the very last thing we saw of him was real bad. And if I only had that to go on, my guess would be, nice. No, he's not a believer. You know, he had Abraham to see and to be around all these years, but it apparently didn't stick because he's clearly not a believer uh, because of the things he did, what we see in his life. But when I go to Second Peter chapter 2, I see that God says he was a believer. God says that Lot was a righteous man and that God saved him out of Sodom and Gomorrah as a righteous man whose righteous soul was vexed daily by the ungodliness of those around him. Really? Didn't look that way to me. Well, that's because I'm not God. I can't see the heart, huh? Lot's a real good example of a person who was saved by faith, declared righteous by God on the basis of faith, and because of his circumstances and because of his personal choices, he didn't make much of it. He didn't get any rewards. When God pulled him out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he had been a rich man when he went in. God dragged him out by his hands, and he had nothing. And by the way, the last thing we see in his life is that he, his, his daughters got him drunk on purpose because they thought they were the last people alive on earth and that they had to save the human race by committing incest with their dad. And he got both of his daughters pregnant. He was drunk out of his mind. He didn't know what was going on. Still, he did it. And the progeny were two young fellows named Ammon and Moab. Anybody recognize those names? The Ammonites and the Moabites? They were the most bitter enemies of Israel down through the ages, and they still are today. The Ammonites and the Moabites became what we call Jordan today. The capital of Jordan today is Ammon. And the Ammonites and the Moabites are what became the modern nation of Jordan. And by the way, the Palestinians are Jordanians. They are from Ammon and Moab as well, and they're stuck inside the land with Israel. Jordan wouldn't let them go home. <coughs> so, good old Lot. He did that for us. Was Lot a believer? Yeah, God says so. If you want to argue, argue with him. Do I like saying Lot's, Lot was a brother? <laughs> no, I don't like that. You know, we, we're kind of ashamed of him because of his behavior, because of the things he did, because of the fruit of his life. And yet, God said that he was a righteous man. And the only basis on which anybody was ever declared righteous by God is on faith. <clears throat> In Romans chapter 4, God reiterates that. He says that Abraham was reckoned righteous because of his faith, not because of works. The works came later. 
prime example. You ought to go read that. Read it over and over. Romans chapter 4. And you'll see that Abraham was saved by faith, declared righteous by faith. And the works, including his circumcision, including all the other things he did, came way later, years later. What else do we see? <clears throat> well, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is addressing the Ephesian believers but all the truths he lists in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, are called unconditional. They are positional truths. Every single one of the things that you read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, are true of all believers, regardless of how you're doing today. You're already accepted in the beloved. You're already, already redeemed. You're already saved. You're already uh, blessed with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. He says so. You're already accepted in the beloved. I think I already said that. There's about 18 things listed there. You can go through and enumerate them if you want. <clears throat> They're all positional truths. They have nothing to do with how I'm doing in terms of faithfulness, obedience, piety, holy living. They have nothing to do with any of that. It's position. You're in Christ. Why is that important? Well, because Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. In Christ, position, in Christ. How do we get in Christ? Well, that's another good question then. How do we get in Christ? Well, God says that the moment you trusted Christ's promise, trusted his finished work at the cross, trusted his blood as being sufficient to pay for all your sin, that moment the Holy Spirit took you and placed you into the body of Christ. And from that moment forward, you're permanently part of the body of Christ. You can read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. It says you've, that we've all been baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. That's your new position, your new location. And that is where God chose you before the foundation of the world. All those that would approach Jesus in faith, he chose that group. Those that would approach Jesus in faith, accepting his work at the cross as being finished work. So among the saved, what does it mean when it says that you are called? Because it does say that in Romans chapter 8. We always like to read Romans 8, 28, say, God works all things to, to good for those. Yeah, but it says to those who are the called according to his purpose. And yet when you tell them, you know, I think you need to get into, into God's service, you need to start working for the Lord. You say, well, I don't feel called. Really? How come nobody ever says, I don't feel called when you read Romans 8, 28? where it says that, that God works all things together for good to those who, are, who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Nobody says, I don't feel called on that verse. We're a little bit selective on our calling, aren't we? Okay, but let's see what he says about that. <clears throat> In John 6.44, Jesus said, No man can come unto me except the Father who has sent me draws him, calls him, pulls him, and I will raise him up at the last day. But see, six chapters later in John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus speaking said, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of the crucifixion, it says in the next verse, that's what he was talking about. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto, my, unto me. Jesus is the magnet that God is using throughout all ages to draw people to himself and those that respond to see the cross and recognize a good thing there. They recognize that was for me. See, that's a, that's a choice. Those that recognize it 
then those are the ones that become the chosen. If I take a, a physical magnet and wave it over a pile of dust, what's going to happen? Well, if it was just sawdust, nothing's going to happen. If some iron filings were in amongst the sawdust, the iron filings are going to respond to the magnet. Okay, And God chose in advance, before the foundation of the world, before Adam was created, he knew that sin was going to come into the world. Jesus is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth in, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Before sin came into the world, before he even created anybody, he chose those who would place their trust in Jesus' shed blood at the cross as those that he was going to call his own, as those who would be in Christ, as those who would be his, his children and his followers and his family forever. Okay. So Jesus has been the invitation, the means by which the Father has drawn people down through the ages. Many, the whole world, many are called those who respond in faith are comparatively few. Jesus said so. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 13 and 14, he says, enter ye at the straight gate. Now, we see straight as being as opposed to wiggly, right? How about the bearing straight? Is it straight? No, it's a narrow place where the ocean is stuck between the islands of Alaska and the islands of Siberia. We call that the bearing straight. There's lots of straights. Any place that's narrow, a tight place, that's what straight means. A straight jacket is that tight jacket that's got the sleeves in the back that, you know, Houdini and those kind of characters get themselves wrapped up in. And there's other people who get wrapped up in them too. But that's what the meaning of straight here is. Enter ye at the straight gate, the narrow gate, the hard gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, narrow, hard, tight, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. But see, those few are the chosen. Uh, Ann and I had a pastor for a while who publicly said, I just assume people are saved unless they give me belief, reason to believe they're not. And I think, isn't that kind of backwards? Because Jesus said, most people aren't. Most people aren't. Most people are going to reject him. We know that. We know it experientially. We know it because Jesus said so. But God chose before the creation to make Jesus the sacrificial lamb, his only plan of salvation. As I said, in Revelation 13a, Jesus is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. <clears throat> and he invites us, he calls us to respond in faith. And we can choose either life or death. Faith is a choice. Faith is not a force. Faith is not a muscle that you exercise. All these things that people say about it. No, faith is a choice to place your trust in what God said. More specifically, faith becomes an obedient response to a revealed truth. In this case, the revealed truth is believe and live. As a believer, faith means God says, go and do this, and you do it. That's faith. You know, Noah responded as a believer. He built an ark. Well, God didn't tell me to build an ark. So it wouldn't be faith for me to do it. Besides that, it'd be, I mean, how would you launch the thing? My goodness. You know, the faith is an obedient response to the revealed truth. And the revealed truth down through all ages is that if you'll place your faith in what God says, he'll give you eternal life. Eternal life. That's what his promise is. We permanently belong to him. <clears throat> 
We choose to receive him as our Savior. We place our faith in him, just like the thief on the cross did, just like Abraham did, just like every single person in history who's ever been saved has done. They've placed their faith in Jesus as their Savior. And from that moment, we permanently belong to him. But then as a believer, we have a daily choice to make. Faith is a choice. As believers, moment by moment, we can choose either faithful service and obedience or unbelief, non-faith, and disobedience, failure to serve. And the resulting rewards or lack of rewards are simple justice as sowing and reaping. Galatians chapter 6, he says, Be not deceived, uh, for God is not mocked, for as a man sows, that shall he also reap. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. You know, if we sow a life of faithful obedience to God, then we're going to reap rewards. Salvation is not a reward. Salvation is a gift. You cannot earn it. Jesus did all the work right there at the cross. We can't add to it. He's... He completely satisfied God's holiness and his righteousness with his blood at the cross. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he says that he is the propitiation. That means the satisfaction, the legal satisfaction of God's righteousness. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2 is some solid doctrine. Hang on to that. When we place our faith in his work, we recognize that his blood completely took away the sins of the world. But as sinners, we can only partake in that salvation by simply placing our faith in what he did at the cross. There's nothing I can do to add to what Jesus did. Having made that initial choice to trust Jesus as your Savior, then I can look at Romans chapter 1, verse 6, and he says that we are the called according to his purpose. Romans chapter 1, verse 6, talking to believers, says you are among whom you are the called according to his purpose. That's you. Ephesians 1, 4 says you are chosen in him before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and without blame before him in love. And Jesus concluded his statements here in John chapter 6, verse 47, saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me has everlasting life. Now, what tense is that? That's present tense. That's not future tense. He that believes in me will have eternal life, provided he keeps his nose clean. Yep, got it. No, has it right now. He who believes on me has everlasting life. You have it now, just as he promised in John 5.24. A lot of you know that's one of my favorite verses, John 5.24, because it covered three tenses. John 5.24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life, that's present tense, shall not come into condemnation. That's my entire future forever covered. I'm never going to be condemned by God, but has crossed over from death into life. Now, it, it doesn't show up very well in English. That's in Greek. That's a continuous, excuse me, it's a, a past perfect tense, which it happened at a past point in time, but it has a continuing effect for the future. It means it's a done deal. It means when you cross over from death into life, you can't go back. You can't cross back. It was a permanent change. These are pretty heavy promises, aren't they? So maybe 
maybe you're one of these that thinks, well, yeah, but those promises are only good as long as I hold up my end of the bargain. Guess what? You don't have an end of the bargain. You can't affect it at all. Either Jesus' blood was enough at the cross or it isn't. If it isn't, then we're lost. If it is, then I can't add to it and I can't take away from it. All I can do is respond in faith and then walk with him by faith. If you are one that believes, well, you know, that eternal life's only yours as long as you keep believing. Okay, let's ask some questions here. How long is everlasting? Um, let's see, everlasting? Right? Jesus said, at the moment you believed, you received an eternal gift, everlasting life. In John 14, 16, he said that the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. Finally, in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I know them. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Now, those are pretty stinking solid promises. In fact, there isn't any way around them. So ultimately, you're just going to have to decide who, who to believe. See, because my flesh screams out, no, 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 that can't be right. You haven't earned that. Well, that's true. You can't earn that. You can't. It's true because Jesus got it for me. You know, the thief on the cross didn't get into heaven says he was such a neat guy. He was in the process of being executed for capital crimes. And when he placed his faith in Jesus, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Provided you stay good the rest of the time you're being crucified. No, nothing of the kind. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And within a few hours, they were both there. Jesus, Jesus made a promise not based on that man's subsequent behavior. There was no subsequent behavior. There couldn't be. He was already in the process of dying for his sins. And that wasn't going to change. You're going to have to decide personally whether to believe Jesus or believe the arguments of the world that say, well, that doesn't even make sense. Okay? I don't care if it makes sense or not. If it's, if it's so, it's so. There's lots of things that we didn't think made sense until we figured out something. I understand that up until, I don't know, 50 years ago, uh, the way we understood, uh, I don't even know what you call it, the theories of aerodynamics, why things fly, uh, bumblebees shouldn't be able to fly. Bumblebees couldn't understand the math, so they just went ahead and did it anyway. You know, but later they figured out, well, obviously the bumblebees are flying, so we're, our theory has to be wrong. So they went back and recalculated uh, and modified their theories of how flight works and figured out, that, oh, by golly, bumblebees really can fly. Oh, brilliant. Good. Okay, don't believe the arguments of the world against the arguments of God. If Jesus says it's so, it's so. Remember that bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, God said it, that settles it. You're not believing it, doesn't change a thing. My, my failure to believe does not make God's word false. My believing is not what makes it true. It's true because he says so. You're going to believe Jesus or you're going to believe your flesh? That's always saying, no, that's not right. You know better than that. Look at that. Look at the way you're behaving. God wouldn't save a wretch like you. Ultimately, ultimately, are you going to believe Jesus 
Are you going to believe the whispering voice of that ancient enemy of your soul? Because that's who's talking to you through the, full, through the world and through your flesh. That enemy of your soul who desires to destroy your faith and quench your love and crush your joy so as to make your life fruitless and useless to God and fruitless in Christ. You have to choose day by day, moment by moment, who you're going to believe. See, that's why Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 commands us to put on the full armor of God. Some of you have been through it a lot of times. If I do, if I'm willing to respond in faith and put on the armor of God, then my loins are girt about with truth. I'm completely bound up in the truth of God's word. I don't really care what arguments the world has against it. If God says it, it's so. My feet are shod with the preparation of the good news that God is never going to see me as his enemy again. Romans 5.10 says he died for me while I was his enemy. But now I have peace with, excuse me, I'm getting the hiccups here. <clears throat> now I have peace with him permanently. That's the good news. That's the gospel of peace that would have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I can't slip and fall because no matter what, God's on my side. That's the gospel of peace for a believer. Our hearts are protected by the breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Mine? Don't make me laugh. The righteousness of Christ. I have no righteousness of my own. The breastplate of righteousness. That his righteousness has been imputed to me. That's what protects my heart. My mind is protected by what we're talking about this morning, the helmet of salvation, the sure, secure knowledge that I'm already saved permanently, that God's never going to let me go. My mind is protected by that. And when our enemy attacks us with the doubts and lies and accusations that are his primary weapons, we can use the shield of faith to quench those flaming darts of the wicked. That's what it's for, to place our faith in, no, this is what God says. Yeah, I know I'm a dirty old guy, and I, I've got uh, all these things that are built into me. Some I inherited, some I built over the years through, through habits, some by the people I've worked around all my life. I've worked against construction trades my whole life. Believe it or not, there's some rough characters in that trade, all of them, all that trade. Doesn't matter. Use the shield of faith to quench those flaming darts of guilt and fear. We choose to believe Jesus instead of believing the voice of the evil one. And now, today, every Wednesday night, every Sunday morning, hopefully every day on your own, some of you I know for sure are in the Word every day, we're arming ourselves daily with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That's one that takes practice. That takes practice. And we're empowered in prayer. We enjoy the privilege of entering into the holy place and bringing our praises and our petitions to the eternal almighty God who loves us and who accepted us in the beloved and has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Okay, so you can know. You can know for sure that you have eternal life. You can know that you're one of the chosen in Christ. You don't have to wonder and hope and wait until you die to find out if you made the team. No, you don't have to wait. You can know now. You see, if you believe Jesus' promises, then... He's promised you have eternal life now. We read that in John 5, 24. He's promised you'll never be again be condemned by God. We also saw that in John 5, 24. He promised that you permanently cross over from death into life. That's also from John 5, 24. You're starting to see why I like that verse? 
He promised that the Holy Spirit would be with you forever, John 14, 16. He promised that under no circumstances would he ever cast you out, John 6, 37. John's got a lot of rich stuff. Better. We've been, what, almost a year in it now, and we've only gotten six chapters, and we're not even done with that. He promised that his sheep, those to whom he gave eternal life, shall never perish, John 10, 27, 28. You're either going to believe Jesus or you're not. On a daily basis, you're either going to believe Jesus or you're not. But God says he wants you to know that you have eternal life. 1 John chapter 5, if you would turn there, please. 1 John, not the Gospel of John. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. This is another good one to memorize if you haven't. He says, this is the record that God has given to us, past tense, God has given to us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He that has the Son, present tense, has life. And he that has not the Son of God has not life. There's your dividing line. You either have Jesus or you don't. Verse 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of of the Son of God, that you may, what, hope, think, wish, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. God wants you to know this. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we'd ask that you to raise us up as the men and women of God that you called us to be. We trust in you day by day, step by step, as we walk with you and serve you as lights in the dark world. We ask that you teach us to believe you in all things and to obey you as a result of faith in you. Make us to be your hands and your feet and your voice in this dying world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.